Well, good morning. It's good to be here this Christmas season. I'm going to make an adjustment. I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles, open to Luke chapter 2. And if you have a cell phone or a tablet or you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one next to you. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2 this morning, as you just heard read by Stephanie. We greatly appreciate that. And as you're doing that, um, there are some connection cards in the seats around you. If you're new here, we encourage you to fill that out, drop it in the basket on the way out, or if You've been here a couple of weeks, a couple of months, a couple of years. If there's ways we can be praying, ways that you'd like to connect, need more information, please uh, fill that out and drop it in the basket. We're in Luke chapter 2 this morning. I'm excited to share in this Christmas season. So during uh, spring break of my sixth grade year, I was about 12 years old, and my family took a trip down to the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, my brothers and I, my parents, we were to meet my grandparents down there and my aunt and uncle, and we were to celebrate uh, Easter together, but also one of the highlights was we were going to do some windsurfing uh, in the Gulf of Mexico. We were, uh, had a, a, a house that was going to be on the water. We were excited about this. I grew up on the uh, shores of Lake Michigan in the summers windsurfing as a young kid, so I had been windsurfing and, and was excited to kind of take part in this. And so we got down there, and it's about the third day, and, and I hadn't got a chance to windsurf yet because I was pretty low on the pecking order. My parents windsurfed, my, my grandfather windsurfed, my uncle did, my older brothers did. So I kind of had to wait my turn as kind of the low man on the totem pole. But it was finally, it was my turn. It was about day three and, and, and the board was mine. And so I got my life jacket on because you want to you you know, practice good water safety, right? You should wear your life jacket. So I got my life jacket on and pulled the sail up and I was off and I'm in this lagoon and I'm excited and, and I get a couple hundred yards out and then I fall off my board, which is no big deal. That's a part of windsurfing. You fall off the board, you, your head merges up out of the water, you look for your board, it's usually a few yards away, you swim to your board and it goes on. So I fall off the board, my head pops up, I'm in the water and it was then I realized I made one of the bigger mistakes of my life. A couple of days earlier, we were back in Indiana, and I walked into the family room, and my brothers were watching TV, and they were watching a movie. And I decided I would sit down and watch the movie with them. The movie was Jaws, <laughs> a movie about a man-hunting, man-eating, giant, great white shark, and uh, my head emerged from the water, and then I heard it in the back of my mind. It was the theme song. That dun dun, dun dun, and my 12-year-old heart began to pound. My head began to spin, looking for the dorsal fin. And I am not a strong swimmer, but I think I set a record that day. Getting back to my board, jumped up on my board, looked around because I saw the movie, and that that thing can eat boards too, man. So I'm now on the board, and I pull up the sail, and I decided to head back in. And I fell off a few more times, heard the theme song a few more times, swam real fast a few more times, got back onto shore, and then I decided to be like a good son, brother, nephew, grandson, and, and I decided I wouldn't windsurf the rest of that week because I wanted to let other people try the board. Now, I was 12, I'll be 44 next month, and I have still yet to windsurf again in salt water. What traumatized my childhood, I showed to my son a few months ago, and he laughed at the movie. Fear can motivate a scared young boy to swim faster. Fear can motivate a young man with a football to run faster because people are chasing him. 
Fear can motivate a girl to study harder because she wants to get into the college that she is hoping to. Fear can be a good motivator at times. It can push us to excel and do things we didn't think we could do. But at the same time, fear can also cripple us. It can paralyze us. This fear of rejection, it's a fear of I'm not good enough, I'm not loved enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not athletic enough, I'm failing in these areas and I'm just not measuring up. And I think it really begins when we're pretty young, I mean almost as early as preschool and kindergarten when you're walking into school for the first time and there's this fear of I don't know anybody in this class, will I make friends? Will I be eating lunch alone? Who will I play with on the playground? And then we get older and become adults, and those fears are the same. They just kind of take on a little bit different form. I'm no longer afraid about walking into school for the first time, but I'm fearful of starting a new job, or walking into a church for the first time, or meeting her parents for the first time, or I'm afraid that no one is going to invite me to lunch at the office uh, anymore, or, or I look on... Pinterest or I look on social media and I I just fear that I'm failing as a parent. My gosh, this woman next door has kids and her Pinterest looks like Martha Stewart and I'm just trying to put together peanut butter and jelly for my children. I just fear that I'm not measuring up. I'm not enough. Our, Our world just feeds this constantly. I was laughing before the first service. I was talking to somebody uh, and, and they were talking about bicycling, and I like to bicycle, and I've been riding a stationary bike uh, right now because of the daylight time and when I can ride, and, and the guy says, have, have you jumped into uh, one of the spin classes over where you're at? And I said, no, I, I'm, a, I'm kind of fre- fearful to walk in for the first time, and I stopped, and I thought, dude, you're 44, what are you afraid of? Like, you've flown around the world, you've swam in the Amazon, you've biked in Thailand, you've met people from all over the world, you're afraid to walk into a spin class? I'm thinking, wow, and you're about to preach on this? I thought God was good and humbling me in that way. Fear can be a healthy motivator, but it can be so destructive at times. This Christmas season, we've been talking about the concept of hope. And this morning, I want to talk about how the Christmas season shows us that hope is found for all and a God whose perfect love displayed in Christ actually drives out fear. I want us to think about how the Christmas account fits into the big picture. The reality is our sin brings the very real fear of being rejected by God, and that's a real fear. In the beginning, God creates a perfect world. He creates a garden, takes Adam, who he creates, and places him in the garden. Creates a woman, places her in the garden. And they're there to work the garden. They have fellowship and intimacy with God. They have fellowship and intimacy with each other. And they're called to serve and worship God as God walks among them. And God says, I've given you a command. You can eat from any tree in this garden, except for this one right over here. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat it. You'll surely die. Genesis chapter 3, the serpent enters and plays on Eve's fear. You're not going to die. Your eyes are going to be open. You're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. He plays on this fear that God is 
not loving you enough. He's withholding from you. And a loving God wouldn't do that. And she takes and she eats and gives to her husband. And then it happens. Shame enters and they hide themselves. They take fig leaves and realize they're naked and they hide, create coverings. And then in Genesis chapter 3, they hear God walking in the garden. And he calls out to them, where are you? And notice how Adam responds in Genesis chapter 3, verse 10. I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid. When I was a kid, I remember distinctly the sound of my dad's car coming home. And I would be excited. My dad would get up for work, and he'd be gone before I got up. And so I wouldn't see him until that night at dinner. I think part of it was my excitement to see him. I think part of it was I was like a Pavlovian dog. I knew him home meant dinner. And so I would hug him and my mouth was watering because it was time to eat. He was home, right? And so his Oldsmobile would pull up and I would be in the room, my house playing, in my room playing, or I'd be right across the street. And when I was in the house, he'd come home, always had the same routine. He'd let us know he was home and I'd hear his keys hit the table. I'd hear his change come out of his pocket and hit the table. He'd put his wallet there and then we would sit down for dinner. And I'd be excited. My dad was home. There were days I was not excited to hear the Oldsmobile pull up. Those were the days where I had done something that was wrong. I had violated some kind of family code. And when I would hear the Oldsmobile or see the Oldsmobile, it didn't bring excitement. It brought fear. And so I would be across the street playing with my friends, hiding as long as I could, or hiding in my bedroom as long as I could, hoping maybe my mom wouldn't tell my dad what happened today. And if it somehow slipped her mind, then I had to worry about two older loudmouth brothers who were sure to tell my dad what I did wrong that day if my mom had forgotten. So I would hide in fear from my father. I wasn't running out to greet him. God was right. The disobedience of Adam and Eve created death, but it wasn't just physical death. It it created the death of intimacy. The intimacy between them and their father was gone, and what should have been a loving moment was was now being driven by fear as they're hiding from God, fearful of being around him. Adam and Eve's sin had consequences. The intimacy and fellowship with God was broken. The intimacy and fellowship with each other, Adam and Eve, was broken, and God covers them in animal skin and drives them out of the Garden of the Eden because as Habakkuk chapter 1 tells us, God's eyes are too pure to approve of evil. He will not look on wickedness with favor. And people throughout God's word understood this. Isaiah understood this in Isaiah chapter 6 when he he sees God in the temple and he says, Woe to me, I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips living amongst unclean people and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It was the same thing in Judges 13 when Manoah sees God. He's visited by God and said, You're going to have a son. That son's going to be Samson. And Manoah says to his wife in Judges 13, We're going to surely die because we've seen God. Manoah understood it. Adam and Eve understood it. Isaiah understood it. Paul will write about it in Romans that that our sin drives a wedge between us and God and the fear that we have been rejected by God is very real. So we're talking about hope this Christmas. How do we find hope in the midst of this? 
The reality is the Christmas narrative is one where God brings hope into a broken world by announcing that fear is gone. I want us to think about, if you've been with us over the past couple of weeks during this Advent season, let's think about where we have been as we've looked at this kind of Christmas account. We began in Luke 1 talking about Zechariah. And Zechariah was an old man, he was married, he was childless, he was serving the Lord, they were righteous and devout, and he's in the temple serving God, and an angel shows up, and when the angel shows up, listen to what he says in Luke chapter 1, verse 12, he says, it says this, Then appeared to him an angel, Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Verse 13, the angel said to him, Don't be afraid. Your wife's going to have a son. His name's going to be John. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's going to turn the children of Israel back to the Lord their God. He's going to fulfill Malachi 4, just like we had told you. He's going to be the, in the power and spirit of Elijah, the forerunner of the Messiah. After that last week, we saw Mary in Luke chapter 1. This young woman who is betrothed to Joseph getting ready to be married, and the angel shows up in Luke chapter 1, verse 30. And what does he say to her? The angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You're going to have a son. You're going to call him Jesus. He's going to be the son of the Most High, and he's going to be given the kingdom forever. He's going to be a sit on the throne, and his kingdom will have no end. Don't be afraid, Mary. Joseph finds out Mary is pregnant, and Joseph decides that he is going to uh, divorce Mary because the betrothal, the legal action of ending it was a, a legal divorce. And he decides he's going to divorce her quietly because she's pregnant and that's not his child. And in Matthew 1, an angel shows up to meet Joseph in his dream. And listen to what he says in Matthew 1, verse 20. After he considered this, he being Joseph, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. What's conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Call him Jesus. He'll continue to go on. He's going to save people from their sins. He's going to fulfill God's word as was promised in Isaiah. And this morning we had Luke chapter 2 read. You've got these shepherds who are out on the countryside. And so Luke 2 opens with, with Joseph and Mary, they've been moved to Bethlehem by the census, by the Roman government. And while they're there, they, they give birth to their child and they lie him in the manger and they're celebrating this birth of their new baby. And out in the fields are some shepherds, dirty, filthy, unclean shepherds. If you're not familiar with shepherds, when I was a, when I was a kid, you, you'd have a Christmas play and, and you'd have, you know, the shepherds walk down the aisle and the wise men walk, and the shepherds are all these cute little kids coming down and we, we see them in our precious moments kind of Bibles. But they, they weren't considered cute in that culture. They were considered disgusting. They were considered unclean by law because they, ceremonial law because they work with animals. They were considered dishonest. They weren't even allowed to testify in court because they believed that they were, they were liars and they weren't really trustworthy sources. They were considered outcasts, peasants at the bottom of the social scale because they had to hire themselves out to other people to try to survive. These guys are hanging out watching these sheep. And an angel shows up, and they're gripped with fear. 
In chapter 2, verse 9. In chapter 2, verse 10, listen to what the angel says. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And a multitude of angels show up praising God, glory to God in the highest and earth, peace among with them whom he is well pleased. Think about the Christmas narrative and these encounters. You have Zechariah, don't be afraid. Your son, John, will be the forerunner who are going to point people to the one that is to come, the Messiah. Mary, don't be afraid. You are going to give birth to the son of the Most High, the Messiah, who will sit on the throne for David and his kingdom will have no end. Don't be afraid. Joseph, your wife is conceived of the Holy Spirit. He's going to have a son, Jesus, who's going to save people from their sins and he will fulfill scripture. And then we have these shepherds. Don't be afraid because he is good news of great joy for all the people a Savior is born. In verse 15, when the angels uh, hear this, they, they leave and let's go see. And I, and I love this about the Christmas narrative. This birth announcement to the world. It's not to religious snobs. It's not to the deep thinkers. He doesn't invade the castles of the rich and famous or the powerful to say, hey, here comes this child. No, God says to the angel, go and tell, not the deep thinkers, not the snobs, not the rich, not the elite. Go to the dirty, the downcast, the outsider, the one who people think are unclean, and let them know this Messiah, this Savior is for all the people. He's for you. Draw near to him. We don't have to hide from God's voice. You don't have to hide from a father who loves you enough to send his son. 2020 is about to come upon us, and, and, and for some of you, that, that's exciting. It's, it's a new year, it's a new me, it's a new opportunities, it's new gym membership, it's new you fill in the blank. For, for others, 2020 is about to turn, and, and it's fearful. I got a doctor's appointment coming. It's an election year, it's a, it's a new job. My child's getting married, is graduating, is, is you, you fill in the blank, right? For some, 2020 has some anxiety, some fear as to what's next. What is God going to have in store? Listen to the words that he utters throughout the Christmas narrative. Don't be afraid. Because the biggest problem that you're ever going to have is the problem that Adam and Eve had, and it was their sin driving a wedge between their fellowship with a holy God. And God puts the world on notice that fear is driven out because He is here. He is here to deal with our biggest problem, our sin problem. He can cleanse you. You can draw near to Him in all your filth. The skeletons are in the back of your closet that you hide because you don't know if people will accept you, if they know about it. He came to say, give it to me. I already know about it. And I die for it. Trust me with it. Maybe 2020 is an exciting time for you. Maybe 2020 is bringing some anxiety because of who you are or who you're becoming 
or what you've become. And you have a heavenly father that loved you enough to break into our world, to send his son, to simply say, let me break into this area of your life and let me clean it. You don't have to fear rejection. You don't have to fear that you're not enough. Because the reality is, apart from Christ, we are not enough. And yet God loved us while we were yet enemies and sent his son. So that through his son, we are more than enough. We are children of God. Our sin brings a very real fear of rejection from God. And the Christmas narrative is one that brings hope to a broken world because God announces all fear is gone. How does he do that? He does it because 1 John shows us in chapter 4 that God's love drives out fear. The fear of rejection from sin. 1 John is written by the, the Apostle John, the same John who writes the Gospel of John, not John the Baptist. It's a different John, right? It's kind of all confusing. Get a scorecard. Okay? And um, John, who is one of the disciples, one of the apostles who walks with Christ, writes the Gospel of John. He also writes 1, 2, and 3 John. And as an older man, as he's writing 1 John, he says in verse 4, Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. He says this in 1 John 4. God loves you with a perfect love. Every love on this earth will fall short because we're sinful people. But God loves you with a perfect love. Love is from God. And if you're to continue reading 1 John chapter 4, and if you haven't read it in a while, I'd encourage you to read that maybe this week. Not a traditional Christmas passage, but full of hope, full of hope and joy. He says he loved you enough to manifest himself. He showed his love in sending his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We've talked about that word a little bit lately. That word simply means that God sent his son so that he can live a life of perfect obedience, die on the cross, and he is our propitiation. He, his life and death fully satisfy the demands and wrath of a God that must punish sin. And in Christ, he says, his life and death was sufficient to forgive you. He sends his son as a perfect sacrifice. Why? 1 John 4, 18 and 19. There's no fear in love. Think about where we started this morning. In a garden with Adam and Eve hiding fearfully from God. Look at where John ends us this morning. His perfect love displayed to the world that we celebrate at Christmas. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Listen to what John says. Why did Adam and Eve hide from God? It's a fear of punishment. Why did I hide in my bedroom or across the street from my father? It was the fear of punishment. Why do we hide the skeletons in our closet, the secrets, the masks that we put on? Why do we hide the anxieties and the insecurities? Because 
It's the fear of what other people will say about us or do to us or think about us. It's the fear of what God may say or do or punish. He says, you don't have to be afraid anymore. His perfect love drives out fear and frees us in Christ, through Christ. And we're free to live and to love, not because of what the world says about us, but because of through Christ what God says about us. We are loved as children of God. We're not loved because we've done anything lovely. We're loved because Christ has done it all. So I don't have to fear rejection. I don't have to fear, will God accept me based on am I good enough, smart enough, wise enough, rich enough, handsome enough, athletic enough, pretty enough. You fill in the blank. He says, in and through Christ, I accept you. I think the most beautiful part of the Christmas narrative is found in Luke 10. Fear not, shepherds. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. This understanding of fear being driven out, it is not a rich thing. It's not an elitist thing. It's not you have to have enough money or social clout to get into the club. This is the Savior for all the people. If you were to continue on reading in Luke 2, and we're going to see next week, a few days after Jesus is born, Mary and Joseph take him to the temple where there's a man named Simeon. And we're going to look at him a little bit more next week. Simeon's an interesting guy. Simeon is told he's not going to die until he sees the salvation from God, which would be kind of a sweet setup, because if I didn't see the salvation from God when I go to bed that night, I'm guaranteed one thing, getting up tomorrow. Right? The scary thing is actually when he runs into Jesus at the temple, now the thought is, am I getting up tomorrow? But Simeon, he sees Jesus at the temple as a baby, and he says this in verse 29, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. He said, I can die now. My eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared for the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people. Israel says, salvation is here. And it's not an Israel thing. It's not a white thing. It's not an American thing. It's not an Anglo-Saxon thing. He says it is a, a salvation for the Gentiles, for all people. And to me, it's, it's the most beautiful part of the gospel story. That he comes to drive out fear, not based on what nationality you are, what race you are, what economic bracket you're in. He says, I am here for you regardless. It's something we have to consider as we think about Rowan County and its economic and social diversity. He is not the God of just the people who gather here on Sunday morning. He is the God of the nations, and he is the God who has come to be the good news for all the people. And like the shepherds do, we're called to carry that message. They don't just sit in the countryside. They celebrate when they saw it, verse 17, they made known the saying had been told them concerning the child. They're, they're, they're excited and free to share. Hey, this is what we heard. This is who he is. In verse 20, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God. We're free to worship. God, you sent your son into this world to die for us. To, we can live for you. 
Even Zechariah understood this. When Zechariah, earlier in Luke chapter 1, he, he's, his son John is born, and he's excited right before Luke 2. He busts out in praise of God at the end of Luke chapter 1 and says, Listen, God, praise be to God. There's the horn of salvation is here. The house of David is here. You've saved us from our enemies. You've shown mercy to us, just like you promised our fathers. You remembered your holy covenant. You remembered the promise to Abraham. And then in Luke 174, Zechariah is praising God. He says, we've been delivered from the hand of our enemies so we might serve him. There it is again, without fear. He has come into this world to save us, to draw us near to him. We don't have to fear being rejected, but we're free to be loved and to love and to worship and to share who he is and to serve him in joy and gladness because of who Christ is. Praise be to God. Now, if you're here this morning and you, you, you don't know who Christ is or you've never accepted Christ, I, I want to encourage you. I don't know where you've been, what you've been doing or what you're doing. But if you think that what you have done or what you are or who you are is beyond the hand of God, I would invite you to explore the scriptures with us as the calendar turns as you see that there is nothing that you can do that is beyond the reach of God's grace and mercy. Move toward Him. You don't have to let what is going on define you. In Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, you can be a new creation. And the title is not one that God, or what the world gives you, but what God gives you. You can be a son or daughter of the King Most High. Now, if you're here today and you consider yourself a Christian, I want to encourage you. If you're putting on a mask, if you think, man, I don't want people in my life group, in my friendship group, at my work, to know what hides in the back and the recesses of my mind and my closet, where I've been, what I've done, take it to the cross. He died for it so that you may be free to be loved and to love and to worship and to serve and to glorify Him and give praise to Him. You don't have to hide in the bushes like Adam and Eve. You don't have to hide in your bedroom like a scared child because his daddy's home. Because daddy came into this world so that you may have life through Him. Move toward Him. It was July 31st, 1985. Some of you think that's like ancient history. Others of you were wearing parachute pants. We still love you. We don't judge you. I didn't wear them because my parents wouldn't buy them for me. <laughs> July 31st, 1985, R.K. Lund was the vice president of engineering at Morton Thiaco, and he received an inner office memo from R.M. Basjali. R.M. Basjali's inner office memo had the subject line of the following SRM O ring erosion potential failure criticality. Sounds like fun Friday reading, right? What did you do today at work, honey? I read about SRM O ring erosion potential failure. Yes, pass the gravy and don't talk about it anymore. But this letter was written by Basjali because he wanted the management of his corporation to be fully aware of the seriousness of the current 
O-ring erosion problem that the SRM joints were creating, and as an engineer, this worried Bastiali. The The contents of the memo he sent to Lund detailed concerns that erosion would lead to failure for the O-ring to create a proper seal which could lead to catastrophe and lives being lost. And he said, we should make this our top priority to solve this problem immediately. If we don't, we could jeopardize losing a flight. Now, why was Basjali so worried about this? He was worried because their O-rings that they were manufacturing that he was worried were flawed were being used by NASA. Despite continual warnings to both his own employer and NASA, nobody followed up on Boss Jolly's concerns. His concern was that the O-ring that they were using from NASA, from his company, was used to connect rocket boosters to the motor. And when the O-rings eroded, and he said they have the potential to do this in cold weather, and NASA flies in space where it could be cold, he says, when they uh, come into contact with cold weather, they have the potential to erode, not make a proper seal, and this could lead to gas being exposed to tanks that contain liquid hydrogen and oxygen. NASA said, up to this point, O-rings have never failed, and we're going to continue as planned. It was July 31st, 1985. January 28th, 1986, NASA launched the Space Shuttle Challenger. The night before was an unseasonably cold night in Florida. And a minute into the mission, the O-rings did what Boss Jolly feared. They critically failed as they were weakened by the cold and eroded. The Challenger exploded. Everyone on board died including Krista McAulfey, a teacher who was selected from more than 11,000 applicants to participate in NASA's first teacher in space project. Her mission was to fly with the crew, conduct experiments, and teach lessons from the Space Shuttle Challenger to students across America. I was one of them. Our school was going to be part of it, and we were excited. Until that morning when our janitor walked into our elementary school in the cafeteria and asked us to pray and have time of silence because the Challenger had exploded. Seven lives were lost because critical information was set aside. Information comes across our paths every day. In this world of social media, you are bombarded with information. Some of it we simply filter out and ignore because it's no big deal. Others we pay close attention to because we know it's critical. Oftentimes, it's not just the message, but the messenger that we make assumptions as though we think this is critical information or not. If you're in a store and some stranger is telling you what you should do, you may roll your eyes and just continue on shopping because you don't think much of it. But if you're in the store and your spouse says something, hopefully you're not rolling your eyes and continuing shopping and not thinking much of it, right? You should elicit a different response from your spouse. You should elicit a different response from your spouse, okay? Same thing at work. One of your coworkers may say something, someone else may say something different. You weigh which one you should think about, but it's much different than if your boss gave you a direct message. What about the message from God and His Word? You want to set that aside and ignore it or dive into it? You can take what we've heard today and you can, like NASA and like um, Lund, you could simply say, it's not that important. 
I can continue on as normal. And it may lead to disastrous consequences. The beautiful thing about Adam and Eve hiding in the garden is God comes seeking them and calls out to them and shows them grace and shows them mercy. Christmas is a season where we can celebrate that God calls out to us and shows us grace and shows us mercy. And I pray that you would run toward him. This world is full of a lot of things that we think are going to satisfy us, that are going to bring us joy, that are going to bring us pleasure, that are going to make us feel full or content. And that we have learned very quickly early on in life is it always leaves us feeling empty. C.S. Lewis captures well when he says this. If I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Brothers and sisters, you were made for so much more than what this earth is telling you to chase after. And I pray this Christmas season that you would see the love and the hope and the joy of a Savior who came for all the people. And you can move toward him. As our worship team comes out to lead us in our uh, couple of songs I want to encourage you to, to take whatever worship posture you feel is appropriate. If you want to sit in your seat and spend some time in prayer, please feel free to do that. You want to pray with somebody next to you, please feel free to do that. You want to stand and worship and praise God in song, feel free to do that. You want to praise Him in prayer, feel free to do that. If you need someone to talk to after the service, there'll be people here down front. We'll be happy to talk to you, pray with you, celebrate with you, weep with you. You don't have to hide in the bushes because this Christmas season we celebrate hope in a manger in a God who came to all the people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to glorify you and to praise you. Thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you for the gift of your perfect love that drives out the fears that can so easily entangle and grip us and trip us up. Lord, whether I call myself a Christian, whether I don't know who you are, don't consider myself a Christian, I, I, I pray regardless of where I'm at, Lord, that I would feel the freedom and the joyful pleasure that we have to move toward you. Lord, I pray that you would move us out of hiding in the bushes of the garden. You'd move us out of hiding in the bedroom from our daddy and run out with our arms wide open knowing that through Christ we are loved sons and daughters of a King Most High. Pray this in your Son's most glorious name. Amen.